Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, new polling shows that the majority of Canadians support the federal government calling an independent inquiry into allegations of foreign interference in elections. But they're also being pretty confident about our electoral system. We'll explain in just a couple of minutes. Karen Littlewood, the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, will join us to discuss how they're fighting the possibility of privatization in education. And Ontario daycares say the shortage of childcare educators could threaten that $10 a day childcare promise. What's being done to fix it? We'll delve into that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Obviously, the story in Ottawa and uh, right across the country over the last little while has been the concern about foreign interference in Canadian politics, especially in Canadian elections. So how are we feeling about this? I mean, we certainly heard from the politicians on Parliament Hill. They've got opinions on this and very strong ones. Uh, Not coincidentally, of course, uh, very diverse opinions on this. But uh, how are Canadians feeling about this? Well, our uh, friends have uh, done some polling on this. And uh, Leger Marketing, of course, who have their finger on the pulse of what's happening with Canadians. And uh, some interesting results uh, from the numbers here, what we're feeling about and who's paying attention to this. Uh, and to delve into that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Andrew Enns. Andrew is the Executive Vice President for Central Canada for Leger. Uh, Andrew, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Terrific to join you again, Bill. And uh, yeah, some interesting polling for you and I to chat about. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about this, about how Canadians are feeling. Uh, I'm going to circle back to the to the numbers in just a second. But what I found interesting about this, uh, and maybe not coincidentally, is about 30 percent, I guess, of the people that you pulled on this said they're not even paying attention. They don't know what you're talking about here, uh, which I guess just kind of reminds us from time to time that just you know because we're into this with both feet sometimes. A lot of Canadians have got other things on their mind besides this, don't they? Well, for sure, you're you're right, and and look, there are some there are some real big issues out there, including just uh, you know getting through the getting through a week on your budget with uh, with affordability and stuff like that. But we found in our poll, certainly, uh, you know, the older Canadian, um, you know, those fifty five or older, they're certainly dialed into this. But anybody under the age of thirty five, yeah, there's lots of other stuff on the go to keep them <laughs> keep them inter- interested. But those who are, and the the majority of Canadians though are paying attention to this, uh, and what I find interesting about this is their opinions about first of all how impactful a foreign in, uh, involvement might be here. Uh, it really kind of depends on your political leaning, doesn't it? It really does, uh, you know, and and so in this poll we had a uh, ballot question, so we're able to look at the results not only from uh, you know some of the typical demographics, but we're also able to take a look at how supporters of the of the current government, the Liberal Party, the opposition, the Conservatives, and the NDP uh, viewed this, and we really do see um, you know quite a divide um, between certainly the Liberals, the governing Liberals, uh, they tend to feel they they trust the, the electoral system, they feel the system safe. Um, the NDP, likewise, which I think is kind of interesting, um, you know, Bill, because uh, the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been very aggressive on this, but mm-hmm. but his supporters tend to still feel pretty good about the electoral system and that it hasn't been, uh, you know, overly compromised. But it's where the Conservatives come in. We certainly do see Conservatives have a much more divided opinion. Only fifty five percent of Conservative voters currently in the country say they they feel the. Um, they trust electoral uh, the 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 results of the elections. Um, you know, fifty two percent felt it was safe. Uh, you know, our system is currently safe. So, quite a divide compared to the ninety and eighty five percent who feel like it, liberal NDP voters who feel it's safe. So, partisanship is really playing. Uh, you know, you're seeing it play out here in this issue. 
What I find interesting about this is uh, one of your colleagues, Christian Borka from Leger, uh, commented on that and, and suggested that maybe that's that opinion of us people on the right, the, the conservative, small C conservative right anyway, uh, are distrust, distrustful. And, and that may be kind of a, a spillover from what's been going on in the United States over the last four or five years because of Trumpism, you know, fake news, fake election, uh, election stolen, things like that. Uh, what's your read on that? Do you think that that's actually starting to seep into our political mindset too? Well, I think that there's probably a little bit of truth to that. Certainly, I, I think maybe, you know, we saw it manifest a little bit more in, in that, that party further to the right of the Conservatives, the the, oh, the, yeah. people's, uh, the people's Party, certainly. Yeah. Um, you know, I think more so that was probably affecting the opinions of Conservatives is just the 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 uh, the uh, I, I would say the aggressive position of their leader and some of the communications that they're certainly pushing out and and uh, he's very active on social media so I think it's uh, it it may not be so much of uh, an American influence at this stage but um, but certainly there is the divide there no uh, no question now we're talking about whether or not this foreign interference the i guess i was going to say alleged but i mean there seems to be some pretty strong evidence that it did exist or some of the uh, the documents that, that have been leaked from CSIS. Uh, and we have an opinion on that but the other question that you asked which i think is very relevant here is okay should there be a, an independent inquiry to try to get to the bottom of this and on one thing no matter how we feel politically whether left right middle whatever the case might be uh, there seems to be pretty strong consensus that yeah let's let's look into this let's let's get to the bottom of this yeah absolutely we found 72 percent of canadians overall supported the uh uh that there's that the government should hold an independent inquiry uh which they're currently sort of uh, they seem to be reluctant to do and i think the interesting thing here is suddenly the political divide that we saw in all those questions regarding how they felt about the electoral system and the impact of this where we saw that political divide suddenly on this question we have virtually like political unanimity um you know all parties i mean the liberals were you know those who support the government were a little lower but 71 percent of current liberal voters felt that there should be an independent inquiry 79 percent amongst the conservatives and 78 percent amongst the ndp and 89 percent amongst the bloc so so on that question there's a there's a real strong desire for that uh even amongst the liberal supporters which that i find a little bit interesting that the that the government is um seems at this stage anyway so so reluctant to go uh, to go that direction yeah, I mean, clearly, because I've heard that on our program over the last couple of weeks, too, as we've talked to listeners about this, and and, and that's the point they all seem to agree on, Where wherever you are in the political spectrum. Uh, there's something going on here, and uh, even if we don't think it's having a huge impact on, on our electoral system, uh, we want to know who's doing it and what they're doing and, and, you know, how long it's been going on. I think these are these are questions that, that I think are on everybody's mind these days, and, and I, I don't know. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, at, at, you know, with the, trying to get the pulse of what's going on with Canadians, Andrew, uh, is the government listening to this or, you know, do they have a, a, another agenda that they're following here? What's your read on that? Well, I, I think for sure they're listening to this. Uh, you know, the government's doing their own uh, their own public opinion research and, and this yeah. topic is being asked about, I'm, I'm almost certain of. I think maybe there's 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 other reasons that they're they're reluctant to. I think the government may have to engage a bit more in terms of clarifying really the rationale why not um i think you're putting the i guess we're waiting to to hear who the special uh repertoire i think they they're they're calling it who will will kind of head this 
puts a lot of pressure on that individual. Uh, and they're certainly walking into something that, uh, you know, the public's going to be wondering, can you, you know, can you really do what you're, what we, we feel is necessary here? So I, I think on this question, I'm not sure we've seen the end of, uh, you know, th- that uh, we've seen the, la- the final decision. Yeah, the uh, the phrase the prime minister keeps using when he's asked this question is he's going to appoint what he calls an eminent Canadian uh, to yeah. head this investigation. I, 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 that kind of boggles the imagination as to what, what, what do you mean by eminent Canadian? <clears throat> well, and it's tricky, too, because, you know, back up to our earlier conversation, Bill, I mean, it, like this is there's partisanship here. There, there's, there's, oh, some, yeah. there's some strong political views, and um, so if you can't, you, it's really incumbent that they find an individual that can really kind of bridge the divide of all three parties here. No small task. I mean, we'll see. Uh, you know, n- nothing's impossible, I guess. But, but that to me is the challenge because if if a, if a party doesn't feel comfortable, I think you're going to continue to see that partisanship, and it's difficult to see how how Canadians will embrace the results as being fulsome and, and, and transparent. Well, this is a, a no-win situation for the government, though, isn't it? I mean, basically, even if even if the prime minister announces today, okay, here's my eminent Canadian, on, and, you know, let's, let's go and get to the bottom of this. No matter what the result is, people are still going to be dissatisfied with it. I mean, you know, the Chrétien government, because of all the stuff that was going on with sponsorship and everything else, finally, and, you know, they, they did the Gomery inquiry. Uh, right. and, uh, and he came back and even though he didn't find the government was really culpable, people didn't believe it. Uh, you know, when, when the Harper government, uh, did the, the air bus scandal about Brian Mulroney and money being exchanged, et cetera, nobody really believed the result of that. And they said, yeah, well, you didn't, you know, look under all the rocks. So no matter what's going to happen here, I think we're all still going to be pretty upset about this. Just the fact that it happened. Yeah. And we always tend to want to find somebody to blame for these things, don't we? Well, and I think so, and and I, and, I, and I think on this one that that's maybe what the government's trying to, you know, try try to get to. Maybe not as as elegant elegantly as they as they could, but I mean, I think the important thing here is is I understand we all want to find blame, we always find a smoking gun, but really, I think what what the focus should be is is to what you said earlier, Bill. What's going on? How 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 are things happening potentially, and what can we do for the future to really strengthen and and uh, and protect our system? Right. I mean, I saw reports yesterday that apparently this is suddenly blown up in Australia. So so we're not alone in this, but we really need to think to ourselves: okay, if this is the new way uh, that if this is sort of the new way that we're we're under, our elections are going to be sort of exposed to this. We need to maybe think about how we how we approach them and make changes that should be the focus but i'm not sure right now it seems to be you know as you as you say bill the the liberals may be more focused on trying to protect um maybe protect the reputation a little too much well sure because we don't know when the next election is going to be and they don't want to have to wear this but i think what happens and i've I've seen some of the social media comments over the last couple of days too andrew and uh, i think what a lot of people are doing here is, is trying to connect the dots and saying, oh, the Chinese, oh, yeah, that, you know, and they're thinking about Huawei, they're thinking about the two Michaels, and they're thinking about <laughs> some of the other things that have gone on and say, there's something going on here with the, and the Chinese yep. Communist Party, because we don't want to, you know, make, well, this, this is not about the Chinese people, this is about the, the government in China right now, uh, and there's yep. always been some speculation about, you know, these guys are, are up to no good, and, and I think this really kind of confirms that, I, I'm I'm pretty sure, and I got the tone from the numbers that you guys got in this survey, that it's upsetting a lot of Canadians to say, gee, they were right. Uh, you know, we are getting ripped and, and taken down the road here. 
Well, and I think that's the, uh, uh, you know, that's a bit of the undercurrent here too, I think, in some of these numbers. And, and you know, sh- sure, the partisanship is is torquing some things to some degree. But mm-hmm. I think uh, um, we've had, you've, you've listed a number of them, uh, no shortage of examples of where we feel we're getting the short end of the stick when it comes to uh, our relations with China. And uh, I mean, I did a, I had a conversation with, uh, with a media journalist who had gone in and dug out some results and some specific writings. And you know, you, you can't pinpoint this as the as the culprit. But when you start looking at some big vote swings, all of a sudden from one, you know, within a two year election, you start to scratch your head a little bit. And in terms of, well, did this have something to do with it? Can't say for sure, but I wouldn't mind knowing for sure that it didn't or if it did, how like that's I think what's behind the 72 percent support for uh, an independent inquiry. I mean, people are there. There's just too many examples of some somewhat potentially underhandedness by the, uh, uh, you know, by the uh, Chinese government makes us uncomfortable. Uh, And now we know from what the documents have been leaked already that. Uh, it seems as if they were targeting, you know, conservative writings and maybe trying to favor liberals. And the speculation, of course, is because they figure the liberals would be more Chinese friendly, I guess, to the Chinese government anyway. But uh, I know you guys have, have done a little digging into this right now. And, and apparently, when you look at the results of the last federal election, uh, the conservative vote did drop uh, where the interference was suspected. So, uh, in other words, the people that said, oh, probably didn't have any impact. It certainly did in some of those writings because, uh, you know, the conservative vote decreases significantly. And, and people are trying to figure out, well, why? Maybe it was because of this, which I guess is another reason why people are saying, well, let's look into this. Let's do the inquiry. Exactly. You know, exactly. Like, let's let's go in and and uh, and, and, and I think I don't I mean, look, I think there's be a lot of Canadians uh, would be quite happy to learn that, hey. We dug, we, we uncovered all the rocks, we dug through this, and guess what? It's it's way more smoke than fire, and, uh, you know, we're, we're in good shape and, and all the rest. But I, I think if you, if you don't do that, you run the risk of this lingering kind of uh, suspicion in the back of your mind and, and sometimes coming to the forefront of your mind when you hear of other issues going on, going, ah, oh, here we go again, right? Yeah. So I think this is where this issue continues to... Uh, uh, you know, continues to sort of preoccupy the uh, the opinions of, of Canadians. Well, and as you and I have talked about in the past, in the absence of facts comes speculation, and, and that's <laughs> never good because you don't know which way it's no. going to go. Uh, Andrew, always Indeed. great to talk with you. Uh, thanks so much for the great work you guys are doing, of course, at Lager, to uh, get a, an idea as to where we are right this uh, with our mindset on this. I, I know you guys are going to continue to do that, so we'll talk again soon down the road, okay? Excellent. Thanks, Bill. Have a good rest of your program. Bye-bye. You too. Andrew Enza, Executive VP of Central Canada for Leger Marketing. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The debate about private versus public uh, delivery of uh, services here in this province uh, has been, uh, well, shall we say, energetic over the last number of years, uh, especially when it comes to health care. And, and it's been revived because of the funding that the uh, federal government has announced for all the provinces. And, uh, you know, Premier Ford's already made it pretty clear uh, that an awful lot of the money that they're going to be getting, the new money that they're going to be getting, is, is going to be invested in, in private health care as opposed to our public system. I'm not crazy about that, and a lot of Ontarians are very concerned about that. Uh, not to suggest that, you know, that, that you know, for-profit doesn't have a part, a role to play here. I'm sure they do. 
but as to how extensive that's going to be and uh, and to whether or not the province is going to uh, fund that is is up for debate and ongoing debate. But what about the education system? Uh, since the the premier and his government seem have a propensity for trying to uh, to prop up uh, the private sector uh, when it comes to things uh, private care and and, and education. Uh, are they going to move in that direction? Uh, well, that's a concern, I think, among a number of the people involved in our education here in the province of Ontario. Uh, the privatization of education could be next, according to our next guest, Karen Littlewood, is going to join us. Karen, of course, is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, Karen, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, thanks for having me on, Bill. Let me let me ask you right up front about about how negotiations are going. We're told, uh, uh, you know, the, the government's suggesting that uh, a number of negotiations are going on with different uh, sectors, of course, uh, of the elementary school system, high school teachers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is is this moving slowly but surely down the road, or is there some some areas of conflict, some areas of concern that that you've noticed? Well, yeah, they're they're moving very slowly, but it seems like they've already started to use legislation or regulation instead of bargaining at the table. An example of that was just last week when they said we're all going to have four-year deals. We should have decided that at the table, but the minister decided to use the regulation to impose that on us instead. Well, you know, with the quote that I saw from uh, Minister Lecce about this the other day, I found rather troubling, too. He says, you know, we want to get a deal uh, so that, uh, that you know, kids will stay in school after all this disruption, which is really one of their talking points from the last two or three years, I guess, to try to justify uh, the way they've handled or not handled negotiations in the past. It looks as if they're, they're kind of digging their heels in here. Yeah, well, he talks about uh, wanting stability in the schools, but he doesn't do anything to back that up. And it's really disappointing. The stability in education right now comes from the workers in the system, the secretaries, the custodians, the EAs, the teachers. They are there every day. They're struggling because students are being shortchanged. The money isn't there. We don't have all of the supports in place. The minister talks about extra mental health supports, but we don't have people in those jobs. And now what we're hearing is that the extra money that was there for COVID won't be there anymore. So, you know, there are jobs being cut now when he's saying we've got everything in place. It's really, it's really not a good situation. Well, I, I've talked to some of your, your members over the last couple of months uh, off the record, and, and they're very concerned about, as you say, the way things are right now. Um, you know, the staff has been reduced. Uh, responsibilities have been increased. Uh, just as we've talked about burnout in the healthcare system, I'm, I'm starting to hear a lot of stories about burnout with, with your members, with education. I've never been to so many meetings with members where people are crying. It is really, really sad. They don't feel supported or respected. This is a majority women workforce. And the government says, you know, they imposed Bill 124 that limited our increases to 1% for three years. And then when we won that constitutional challenge, they decided they wanted to appeal it. Like There is no respect that's being shown here. We are all doing double duty. We're covering for our colleagues who are absent. There are people leaving the education system, and that should be a warning sign to the government. Well, not only the, that that bill and the, and the appeal of that bill that's that's a slap in the face, uh, but you know the I guess the you know the kick to the head is the fact that you know they used the not or tried to use the notwithstanding clause. Uh, they withdrew that after a huge huge pushback from the public, but they didn't say they weren't doing it again. I mean, that's still a tool that they may want to use again, and and that's kind of frightening, isn't it? 
It's really frightening. And they did use it on the Elections Act where they limited our ability to speak out during an election. Bill 254, they used it for that when we won that challenge and it became Bill 307. And we have won that challenge now too. This is such a pattern of illogical behavior. You know, you impose some thing on the workers of the province. We fight back, we take it to the courts, or in the case of Bill 28 with CUPE, you threaten to take it to the streets, and the government loses that, yet they still decide that they need to appeal and continue to attack education workers and shortchange the education system. Is, is that having an impact on, on the negotiations on the talks themselves? Because like you say, they're, they're 0 for 2 when it comes to the appeals court right now, not just with the uh, the restrictions they put on salary, uh, but, you know, basically trying to muzzle you and, and, and your voice when it came uh, to election time and your feelings about how the government was handling education. Uh, they've lost that battle as well. Are, are, they, are, they, are they coming to the table right now with a chip on their shoulder? Well, it, it does seem that way. They'd be really happy if we settled for the same kind of deals that are already out there in the education sector. But we are OSSTF. We are a different group. We should not have someone else's contract imposed on us. I certainly hope that's not where they're going to go with this. But, you know, they need to be at the table fairly negotiating instead of regulating. They need to be investing in education. This is the future of the province. These are the students who are going to be the future leaders of the province, the workers, the parents. We need to be supporting them. I got to ask you something else too, because there's been some announcements over the last little while uh, about what's going to be happening within that system itself. And and I know we've talked about the shortage of skilled trades here in the province of Ontario. That's really a national problem, but we'll focus on Ontario. And I know the education minister, uh, the the labor minister McNaughton, and even the premier have all weighed in on this and suggesting that they want to start this at the high school level and they want to make sure that people are exposed, students are exposed uh, to uh, the benefits of, of a, a career in skilled trades, etc. Uh, so here hearing a lot from the government on this, Karen. I'm not hearing much from you. You're the frontline people. You're the ones that would have to deliver this. Are they even asking you about this? Are you being consulted about this this, this shift? I think it's a great idea, but I'd like to know that you guys are at the table and you're going to have some input into this. Yeah, well, remember that pattern of behavior I just mentioned. It's the same here. There is no consultation and sending us uh, a notification that there's going to be a press release, that doesn't count as consultation. It, this is great if we're going to be able to fill the needs in the skilled trades. But what they're not addressing is the fact that we don't have enough tech teachers right now to deliver the courses that we have. So he's saying, okay, you can go out and start working right away. We also have to be considering the fact that, you know, we've got kids who they might go out and do an apprenticeship, but what if it doesn't work out for them? What if they've left school and that doesn't work out for them? I certainly hope they're going to be incredibly successful, but we should be starting earlier. We should be starting in elementary to get kids in love with the tech industry and wanting to work in it. And the teachers should be involved in this. We have the ability to mentor students. We have specialist high skills majors program that allow children to have and students to have that ability to have experience. And what he's saying is you're not capable, you're not competent. We're just going to send everybody out to work. And maybe, I know we're kind of tight on time here, but way back in the day, and I'm going way back in the day when I was in high school uh, at South Mountain Hamilton, there was a whole tech wing, uh, you know, auto yep. mechanics, uh, drafting, uh, you name it. You know, it was all there, you know, shop, uh, you know, metallurgy, you talk about it. That's gone. I mean, they pretty much over the years, and not just this government, but previous governments have stripped that back. Are you concerned now that they've sort of recommitted to this? At least that's what they're, they're talking about anyway, yeah. that they may say, well, you yeah, guys well, don't saying- have the... 
Yeah. Mandatory courses, grade nine and 10. So that's great. But we need tech renewal. We have outdated equipment. And when we haven't had the teachers to be able to deliver the programming, those courses get, get canceled for students. The machinery sits idle. It ends up becoming obsolete. And when they want to open it back up again, they don't have the millions of dollars for the classroom to get that program up and running again. Shortchanging the system is doing permanent damage. But if they do that, uh, they're going to come yeah. back and say, well, you guys don't have the uh, the staff to do this. So, what, you know what? We're going to farm yeah. this up to the private sector. Is that a concern for you? Well, yeah, no, absolutely. Again, I go back to the consultation. Did they talk to us? Did we? We can come up with many great solutions to this. We've got a lot of programs that are in place that are encouraging tech for students. They're not talking to us. They're not. They're not saying, you know, how can we address staffing shortages? What can we do to make sure that we have the workers in the province going forward? Well, it's uh, going to be an interesting discussion and debate and uh, and more to come on this, as they say in the biz, because of uh, the, I think there's a, a wide gap here that's going to have to be bridged uh, between the teachers and, and the government when uh, it comes to exactly how they want to enact some of the things they're talking about. Uh, we'll stay in touch, Karen. Thanks for the time today and uh, stay well. And we'll sure. talk again soon. Yeah, for sure. Budget week is next week. Maybe they'll, they'll be an investing in education announcement. Wouldn't that be sweet? We'll see what yeah. happens. Thanks, Karen. <laughs> Karen Littlewood, Thanks. president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, uh, with some concerns about what's going to be happening with, our, you know, the, the, the public relations on this is one thing and the, uh, the announcements and the press releases. Uh, but you know, when the rubber hits the road, how are they going to get this thing done? That's a, a still a big question mark. You're listening to the Bill Kelly show podcast on 900 CHML. Today's announcement for $10 a day childcare in Manitoba comes less than two years after we reached an agreement with the province. And of course, all of this work wouldn't be possible without the advocacy and leadership of the childcare sector. Prime Minister Trudeau uh, with the, the good news announcement about uh, childcare in the province of Alberta. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton. Glad you're with us today. Uh, and, and of course, uh, Manitoba being one of the latest provinces to jump on board with this. Uh, we all know the story now that Ontario was the last one uh, to a degree to this program. And uh, we've had some problems here rolling this whole thing out. It sounds like a wonderful idea, in, in, and, and conceptually it is. I own $10 a day for daycare. Uh, more spaces created, uh, especially, you know, affordable spaces. And I know a lot of parents are very excited about that, but there seem to be some blips about what's going on here in Ontario. And, uh, you know, you, you can make all the promises you want and talk about how affordable it's going to be, but if you don't have people to deliver the service, in other words, people that work in the daycare system, you got a problem. And that's what seems to be going on here in Ontario right now. To talk about this, uh, please to welcome back to the program, uh, Carrie McQuaig, who is the fellow with the Atkinson Center at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the University of Toronto. Uh, Carrie, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. What, what seems to be happening here? They, I think everybody was excited. We had the minister uh, you know, uh, on the program when they made the deal, uh, both the provincial and federal ministers, uh, and everybody was pretty excited about this, and we thought, okay, finally, we've, we've overcome these obstacles. It's all going to be a reality here in Ontario. Is it happening the way that we want it to happen? Is it rolling out effectively? Well, it's not rolling out effectively in Ontario, and it's not moving out all that well across the country. Um, we have always had difficulty recruiting and retaining people to work in child child care. It, the work is rewarding, but it's also hard and it's notori notoriously underpaid and really undervalued. And so now we have a federal government who's come forward with, you know, a big lot of cash, 30 billion isn't anything to sneer at, but they've given the provinces two 
benchmarks. They said, one, you've got to bring those fees down to around $10 a day. And two, you've got to build more spaces. But what they're you know, notably silent on is the workforce. And the workforce has always been the Achilles heel in this uh, in this uh sector. We have people go into the field and within five years, they're out of the the field. So just when they're, you know, sort of getting their, you know, their professional feet wet is when they leave. Um, And really not much is being done in these agreements between the feds and the provinces to address those, those issues. And let's be clear, it's not just a problem. You know, the, uh, we have a, we are operating at a lower capacity than we did prior to the pandemic. Um, I mean, what's interesting, the differences uh, than before the pandemic is before the pandemic, we had spaces, but we didn't have families who could afford to put their kids, kids in them. So we always had more spaces than we had little bodies occupying them. Now we have parents lined up, you know, out the, you know, around the block trying to get into these into these spaces, but the providers cannot attract the educators to open them. So even when I'd, and I'd be suspicious every time a government comes out with, well, we're adding 400 spaces or a thousand spaces or whatever number they want to pull out of the, out of the air. And no doubt they're being built, but they're sitting empty. And not only are the new spaces sitting empty, spaces that, uh, you know, have been around for a decade are also um, sitting empty. We're hearing again and again from operators that we've had to close our infant room. We've had to cut hours. We've had to, um, you know, in some places close because we cannot find the staff for these these centers. And this is going to remain a problem until governments get serious about what they need to do to make this a job that people want to enter and stay in. On that point, though, Carrie, I guess I'm not trying to apportion blame here, but I think we need to actually understand exactly where the the problem seems to be here, because there was an assumption, I think, made by an awful lot of people in this country when when, uh, Minister Gould, the the federal minister, of course, in charge of this program, uh, laid this whole thing out, and she was on the program on our show many times talking about this. We always assume that these dollar figures that they were throwing around, and you're right, I mean, it's a substantial amount of money, included uh, recruitment and and compensation for these people is, is that the federal responsibility? Is that outlined in in the deal that they signed, or is that fault of the province to actually fill in those blanks? Well, the um, what do you call it? the feds are Switzerland when it comes to the work workforce. They mm. say very little um, about it. Uh, you'll notice that when uh, when federal uh, ministers make uh, make statements on, on this, it's kind of a wish. Right. And there's nothing in the agreements that say you must have a workforce that is properly trained and and properly uh, compensated. They do leave it to the provinces to to do that. And, you know, to be fair, some provinces have um, got out the gate to try to address these issues more than than others. They already have, uh, you know, province wide wage grids um, in place. Uh, they, you know, at least they're on record saying, you know, they're going to follow up with pensions and benefits for, um, for the wor- workforce. Um, others have provide, you know, stipends for training and bursaries and those kind of things. But, but we also need to, need to be clear. There's one thing to pay for training, right? Um, and we, 
you know, we really do not have a shortage. I think we've talked about this before, Bill. We don't have a shortage of trained staff. We have more people with the proper credentials working outside childcare than we do in childcare. You know, these are people that wanted to do this work, gave it a shot and got out because it was, it just did not work for them. Now, if we made those jobs decent jobs, it's quite like it's quite likely that those workers would cut would come back. Um, so, it doesn't do us any good to train up new workers who are going to be a revolving door going into these uh, into these centers because ECEs, um, you know, can take their credentials and find uh, you know and find jobs that that pay them a decent wage in many other fields. You know, from social work to working school to healthcare. Um, uh, immigrant uh, settlement services, etc. You'll find ECEs most everywhere in the care economy. Where we're not finding them is in childcare, where they're desperately needed, um, but where governments are not getting serious about what is needed to make this to make this work. And either we let up, you know, I, we've got to make some. Uh, Thirty billion dollars is a lot of money, but it's a start. You know, it's not the finish. And uh, so either we have to let up on expectations for how many new spaces are going to be created, or we've got to let up a little bit on how low weight uh, fees are going to, to come down and ensure that a uh, sufficient amount is put in the, in the wage bracket in order to have people who are prepared to staff these pro programs. And we just don't have that now. Uh, uh, the numbers I saw anyway from last night as I was looking into this actually, Carrie, uh, from Toronto. I don't have the uh, the Hamilton or London numbers right now, but uh, Jamerson Steve, who's the uh, chief strategy officer for the uh, YMCA of Greater Toronto, says there are about 19,000 kids and families that will not have access to this care. That's just in Toronto. So this is this is a, a problem. That, you know, we look at that number in Toronto and expand that right across the province right now. Uh, somebody's got to pay attention to this and say, what we, we got to do something about this. But this is very very similar to the same story we're hearing about healthcare workers and long-term care facilities, uh, primary care, uh, you know, healthcare deliverers are simply saying, I'm not making enough money. I'm burned out. Uh, the, the work is too onerous. I've got to go and do something else someplace else. And, and we suffer as a result of this. Well, you know, Ontario in its plan has said to um, operators, if you have, um, if you have people that are earning under $19, dollars an hour we will bring you we will give you the you know a dollar an hour two dollars an hour in order to bring their uh hourly wage up to nineteen dollars nineteen dollars an hour well nineteen dollars um, an hour uh leaves you if you live in toronto about 30 percent below a decent wage if you live anywhere else in Ontario, it leaves you about 20% below a decent wage. And what I mean by decent wage is like sort of the minimum you would need, you know, to house feed and get yourself to work. Nothing fancy here. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're offering people, you know, when you're saying, you know, we want you in the front lines to, you know, build this brand new program, which is so important to our economic recovery, which is, you know, so more important to many facets of our of our well-being. Um, but we're not even prepared to pay you a living wage. Um, you know, then 
I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, if I'm a parent with my, you know, with my high school student ready to graduate, am I going to encourage them to go into a field where I know they're going to be poor? Or am I going to get them to use their ed education for somewhere where they will be, um, you know, for the equivalent amount of training, they will be making a living, uh, a living wage. And this is what the province has, you know, has to come to ter terms with. Um, other provinces are doing it. They've actually, you know, they're not just putting a dollar an hour into the pay package of early childhood educators. You know, they're putting, you know, they're putting tens of thousands of dollars a year into the into the pay, pay packet. Um, and this is, you know, because when we talk about lower fees, the only thing that the province is doing is backfilling what parents used to pay. There's nothing extra in there for better pay for workers. There's nothing extra in there for even a better environment for the kids. So low fees are one thing and they're, they're important and parents desperately need this, um, this break, but they're not the whole story about what makes a good childcare program. I want to ask you about something else that seems to come up time and time again as I talk to parents about this, though, Carrie, uh, especially here in Ontario, is, is private delivery as opposed to uh, public delivery. Uh, minister Gould, the federal minister in charge of this program, uh, told us that she wanted to see, if not all, at least the majority, the overwhelming majority of new spaces created in, in the public sector. Uh, yet the Ford government seems to be leaning the other way and says, no, 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 we want to create more jobs in the, in the, in the private sector. And this is public versus private. This is an ongoing debate in Ontario and probably will be as long as, as this government's in power. So it's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, but is that, is there a discrepancy in, in compensation then by, be, between the workers there? And is that a factor in, in why some people are, are turning their back on this, this vocation? It's not just a job, it's a vocation. So we see we see that the private sector pays less than what the um, community sector or the or the public sector does. It, you know, the public sector. If you're working for a school board or a municipality or community college, um, they're not having trouble recruiting staff, right? Because these are jobs that have you know that they're unionized. They they pay a decent wage. There's pensions. There's uh, there's benefits. So somebody can look at this and make it a career. The community sector has a little bit you know has a little bit more uh, more di difficulty, but by far where wages are uh, lowest and where where we see the highest turnover is in the in the private sector. And we know that this, you know, government thinks that there's nothing so good that shouldn't be privatized. But, um, you know, but the, but the bottom line is they still, you know, the private sector still needs to find educators to staff those jobs. And what I'm con concerned about, Bill, and I think we should all have our eyes and ears open to, to this is I think the next thing that we're going to see is that we don't need qualified educators working in childcare. You know, we just need. Uh, we we just need people who like kids, right? Uh, and that would be a tragedy because we know so much about how good early childhood educators can really make a difference in giving kids, you know, a good start in uh, in life. Uh, they they supplement what uh, what parents do, um, and you know they don't replace parents, but they are the educators. Um, and to to see this, we already have a pretty low standard. Only one in two people working with your child needs to have that that qualification. We can see that reduced in order to address this issue. But the bottom line is we're still going to have 
a low paid sector and even people without qualifications are leaving the, the, the field. So there's not a quick fix here. This takes money and it takes, uh, you know, and it, you know, it really takes some efforts on the part of governments, uh, to assure people that either come back to this job because we're going to take care of you or come into this field because you're going to be able to make it a career for life. Um, and that's what that's what kids deserve. Well, exactly. And I thought that was the whole intent of why the government's got involved in this. And, you know, you're right. I mean, there was a time not too long ago and maybe still exists where childcare was simply, uh, you know, you'd send them off to somebody else in the neighborhood who's got a rec room and they just you know, sit in front of the TV and watch whatever. And we'll look after you until your mom and dad come home at the end of the workday. We call it early childhood education for a reason, because as I think there's a common knowledge now that th th those are very, very formative years and very important years in a child's development. If all we're going to do is simply say, uh, here, you know, we're not going to do much for the child. We're simply going to give them a place to get in out of the rain. I mean, that's a huge backward step, isn't it? It, um, it is. And I think it's, a, I think that because the crisis is so acute because no government wants to have egg on its face and because it's the provincial government that sets the rules um, that that the that the likelihood or the the danger of the need for qualified staff being reduced is a likelihood so we i this is it i think we can go one or two ways either we can get smart and really uh and and really respect the work that these people do or we get dumb and we downgrade the profession even further. Uh, it's it's a discussion we're going to have to have, and obviously we're going to follow the story as it uh, unwinds, especially here in Ontario. Uh, Carrie, always a pleasure to get you on the program and get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Bye-bye. Take care. Carrie McQuaid, of course, from the uh, University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.